0: Um, now is it N- Nesheian Daglian, is that I, how I say it? Y'all didn't let it okay. like <laughs> so, Dag, we him Dad. Um, Dag is a retired engineer from Atlas, Copco, and Hoyoke. Uh, he graduated from URI and a master's degree from Winnick. Uh, he started as a junior engineer, uh, was a project product engineer, test engineer, and lastly an engineering manager. He retired in 1998, but continued as a product liability consultant for the company. Uh, he will be talking about the evolution of the compressor, including changes in the designs from the 1950s to the present. Are you still going to talk about that? Okay. And he's also going talk about marketing and how we um, help design new equipment. So please help me welcome Dad.
1: Welcome, everybody. Um, a little bit about myself. I'm old. <laughs> I don't hear well. I'm balding. I'm from Rhode Island, and I talk funny <laughs> until they tell me. Uh, I was asked to come to talk about compressors, and you know, when I thought about this, I, I the group that you have, I said, how am I going to, am I going to present anything that's meaningful? I can talk about compressors. In, i did not i wasn't in compressors and stuff. 53 years so I've seen a lot of changes over the years, Uh, I've been involved in a lot of development (coughs) projects and some pretty unique applications. Uh, So I thought what I would probably just briefly go over some ground rules on on compressors, you know uh, compressors have been around for eons, Uh, but a lot has happened uh, in the last 20-25 uh, years, on compressors that used to be basically piston machines, but they've gone through rotary designs, <coughs> uh, many different uh, rotor profiles, some very successful, some not so successful. Uh, so what I think I what I think I would like to do is pick three <coughs> compressor designs that went through the patent process. That I had some involvement in, not in the patent process, but in the application of that process. One was very, very successful. Uh, one was okay, and one was a complete disaster. Uh, there are other patent processes that were followed to for, for for innovation, but these are the three that I that I had some exposure to and. Uh, to probably relate to some of the things that that, that we ran into. Uh, compressors. Compressors. Uh, I am going to talk about industrial machines. Now, these are uh, these are units that are, are used in the manufacturing process. They're compressors that you see all over in Sears or Lowe's or whatever, and for household use and for pumping up tires and that kind of thing. But these are usually for some kind of a manufacturing process. Uh, the compressors fall into, industrial compressors fall into two basic groups. We have the uh, positive displacement and the dynamic. Okay, in a positive, a positive displacement machine, as it's, as it's stated here, the classical pump is probably the simplest form of, of compressor that we can relate to. Air is drawn into a cylinder, a piston acts on the air, raises the pressure level to some, to some point where uh, some meaningful work can be done. In the case of a pump, you know, we're, we're blowing up a bicycle, uh, a bicycle or a, a tire. Uh, a piston compressor has the same uh, principle operation. Uh, uh, the air is drawn into the cylinder. Uh, the piston acts on that uh, column of air and raises the pressure level so some meaningful work can be done. Now, pistons, piston compressors can be in a variety of different
2: arrangements.
1: We have a single single cylinder, we have a multi-cylinder, we have L-shape, we have a Y-shape, we have V-shape, and, uh, but they all work on the same principle. Something is driving the, the shaft of the compressor to, bring to allow the piston to go up and down and compress the air. The, the compressors are used for varying uh, applications. Uh, I think we we all think of a comp- compressor just to pump up some automobile tires, but it's used uh, throughout the industry for a variety of reasons. Uh, they, the compressors can be lubricated or oil free. Okay, what's the difference? We, we have a lubricated compressor that. Uh, oil is in the crankcase of the compressor to lubricate the variance of the air in the driving arrangement. For oil free unit, we have oil in in the driving arrangement, but we have the compression chamber free of any oil so that the discharge air is clean. There are a lot of processes that are used that require clean, dry air. Okay, we go from uh, the positive displacement compressor. Do I make this work? No. I
0: think
1: you're saying the right click. Dynamic. Okay. A dynamic compressor is is a usually a very large machine uh, high horsepower we're talking horsepower is in the 2,000 3,000 4,000 uh, range very high air delivery we're talking uh, capacities in the thousands of cubic feet per minute they uh, they're used principally for uh, process applications where large volumes air of air are needed at a given pressure. Uh, the operating principle is a large impeller that accelerates the air to very high velocities in an airstream and then the, the air passes through the diffuser, is decelerated and that packing process builds up the pressure so that it can do some meaningful work. Now, when we compress air, we have a lot of heat that's generated. You're squeezing molecules together, but we have to watch that so that the temperature level does not exceed the danger point. We bring up the pressure to some safe level. It's then discharged through a heat exchanger, cooled, and then the process is repeated for the second, third, and fourth stage. Dynamic compressors give me. When I say multi-stage, there are, could be as many as 25, 35 stages. Now that means each stage, the <coughs> pressure level is increased. When you get to high pressure levels, like the 8 to 10,000 pounds, you will have multiple stages of compression with cooling taking place between each stage. As stated here, that it's used in process applications where large air volumes are required. <coughs> I did an audit at a stamping plant in Chicago for Ford, uh, and uh, they had 8,000 horsepower of centrifugal compressors running their air system. and uh, It was at a, a uh, constant pressure level Where um, after we finished the audit, found that they were just wasting tons of air, and uh, had them had they really correct some of their problems so that they could uh, continue on with their uh, stamping. They were they were stamping uh, uh, sheet metal doors for the Taurus, the Taurus automobile. That was kind of an interesting application. We found that uh, a lot of the air, believe it or not, was being used for self-air conditioning. Each each guy at the the stamping station had a hose directing air on himself to cool. This was in the summertime, so there was a ton of air being wasted. Before we went to to the audit, they, they were planning to buy another, Ford was planning to buy another 2,500 horsepower air compressor because they were short of air. But after we finished the audit, we found that, they were wasting more than 25 horsepower of air through the uh, improper use of the, of the air at, at, the, at the plant. One of the, one of the problems they had was, they had a large sex uh, dryer uh, in the system and that was constantly having uh, following problems in their uh, discharge uh, uh, system. So in order to get around that problem they just left the valve wide open so they had two inch and a quarter lines just blowing air to atmosphere, you know, and uh, just so they get around this, this problem. But uh, there they were wasting almost five, 500 horsepower of air uh, just for through leakage. Uh, the air from a dynamic compressor is usually oil free, they're very, very expensive. And they can be in, in the radio or the axial design. I was just wondering when you say
0: it's expensive, it's not just expensive to buy, it's to be very expensive to operate. And it, it does not this kind of thing
1: have a service contract to grow? Actually, they're expensive to buy and expensive to operate. Uh, that's true for any compressor. When we look at compressors, people think the air is free. That is not free. You can buy a compressor, in fact, I recall doing an audit on a 200 horsepower uh, screw compressor a number of years ago. The horsepower, the compressor cost about $25,000 to buy. But to operate that machine at about a 90% utility level for a year, counting the maintenance that was required to keep that thing operational, you were spending something like seventy-five to $78,000. So it's costing almost three times as much to run the machine as the machine costs, so it's not cheap. The problem is, on these electric-driven machines, no one really knows how much it's costing because the electrical bill is lumped in some bucket that includes other items. And uh, if, if one were able to factor that out and find out exactly what they're spending on air on the air compressor, I think uh, you'd see a lot lot uh, of work being done to uh,
2: <coughs>
1: to make the system more efficient yeah. there's a lot of waste there's a lot of waste with air compressors is there anybody questions just just stop me and just start uh, just ask okay what's a typical waste that most everybody would have what's that what's, what would be a typical thing that most everybody would have that they're wasting okay uh, <laughs> Waste, uh, the uh, opening the drain trap of the, uh, of the uh, uh, system is, is one of probably the most common. The other is uh, overpressuring. In other words, if they feel they need 100 pound pressure, so they'll build a, a, uh, an air tank up to maybe 200 pounds and think they're safe, but it's really costing a ton of money to do that. Uh, there's a rule of thumb that if you overpressure by two pounds, you're you're adding one percent to the power requirement. So you you see you don't have to go too much to, to make that a significant number. You know, back about ten years ago, the Department of Energy did a study and they found that that air compressors use a lot of electricity. Somet- something in the order. 30% of the electrical power coming into the plant sometimes is just utilized to run air compressors. And they realized that there's a lot of waste. So they, they put some pressure on the Compressed Air and Gas Institute and a, and a committee was formed they called the Compressed Air Challenge. And that group went around to, and they, what they tried to do was educate the users to be more cognizant of the waste that, that is taking place in, in their systems. The whole purpose is if you could utilize and make these things more efficient, then that's the list of a, uh, most likely they'd have to go out and generate more electricity to, to supply uh, the uh, industrial systems. Um. Uh, just a, a quick chart here for some comparisons, uh, top left is the, is the uh, just shows the uh, dynamic machines we have uh, an ejector, the rotary it would be the centrifugal design, and the axle, axial would be uh, actually the rotary centrifugal machine in a horizontal configuration. This would tend to simulate or to uh, be analogous to uh, a, a jet engine kind of uh, arrangement. These two produce tons of air, and they're process machines for a specific, usually for a specific purpose. Contrast that now to the to the uh, displacement compressors. There, are, you can see there's a whole bunch of whole bunch of we have piston machines here. could be single acting, double acting. This is the labyrinth type, the diaphragm. All of which take in a gulp of air, they squeeze the air and deliver it. And uh, of course we have a, a line of, of rotary machines. Sliding vane, liquid ring. So this is fairly new to scroll machine, small in size. A lot of these are finding their way into the refrigeration business, into the... It actually into the home uh, air conditioning systems. Screw compressor, the tooth compressor, and a Roots the blower. <coughs> there's a couple other types that we show here. There's a there's a uh, step compressor and the gate compressor uh, of the Zimmerman design. virtually all manufacturing systems have a compressor small or large to, to take care of their plant needs as I said earlier it's a good energy source but it is not cheap it is, and uh, it is wasted general general air uh, compressed air can be used for a lot of things uh, here we have general plant air uh, petrochemical business the food industry electronics big business here in, in, in in making uh, plastic bottles and uh, aluminum cans, or uh, medical or uh, packaging industry, transportation. One that I failed to show here is textile. The textile industry uses a lot of compressed air, oil free air, especially in the formation of the synthetic fibers. We have a, a list of special gas applications that can, can uh, include natural gas, nitrogen. Nitrogen acts much like air, argon, oxygen, and there are other like We've used uh, uh, compressors to uh, compress uh, some different exotic gases. Sulfur hexafluoride is one that we've used uh, quite a bit uh, that is used in the switch gear business. We can compress practically any gas that, has that is similar to air in the, uh, say, the diatomic gas. And one that has a ratio-specific heat that's similar to or close to air. Uh, if we get the uh, errors is about 1.4, if we get to uh, n values that approach 1.6, 1.7, now we've got a big problem because of, of uh, the heat compression. It can be done, but it, it's uh, it's just tricky. Okay, when <coughs> when I thought about this, I. I and what, what I was going to present. thats kind of the background on compressors that I just want to cover. I really want to go into uh, three types of compressors here that, uh, that went through the patent process and, and uh, the success and failure uh, of, of each as, uh, uh, as we go through this. Uh, the First is the, that I want to talk about is the screw compressor, <coughs> then the tooth compressor, and, and then the step. Uh, the screw compressor is a Swedish design. A fellow named Alf Lisson was the inventor. In fact, the compressor today is still called a Leeson compressor, and as you see that, used in a variety of applications. It's an air compressor, but it also shows up in a lot of cars as, uh, as the uh, turbo, turbocharger for the uh, for the for engines. Uh, Mazda has a uh, Lisson compressor. Ford and I think there are a bunch of marine applications. Mercedes Benz has a lysome compressor. You <coughs> got to be a little careful here because we say that, that lysome was the <coughs> inventor, but there is <coughs> there is uh, there was a patent that was issued back in 1800s, 1870 to a German uh, for a screw compressor. But that didn't go anywhere because at that time. Even though that a patent was out there, no one could build it. That the technology wasn't in place even to do this, so the whole thing just dropped. Now, <coughs> uh, so we saw him work for a company called SRM in Sweden, and they were big in the in the uh, diesel engine business for for uh, locomotives. And what they were, what he was looking for at the time was a uh, <coughs> a way to provide a booster to the diesel engine other than using the centrifugal machines they used before, which were very big and expensive. So he he embarked on this screw uh, idea and uh, found out that it had good air compression capabilities. They, They worked on that during the 40s and early 50s and went to market About fifty, (coughs) nineteen fifty-five. I don't want to get into that now. But what they did is they ended up licensing the patent, and then and then tried to get people to build on their license uh, agreement. (coughs) That turned. Get that thing out of here. How
2: do we get that out? the other
1: button. Yeah. The other button. Okay. There we go. Okay. The other one uh, is the tooth compressor. Uh, That is uh, that was a U.S. patent uh, issued by uh, uh, Mr. Brown. I think his name was Royce, but I'm not sure. That's why I didn't put it on there. But but uh, that's something that was. uh, I think that patent was uh, issued in the (coughs) late 40s. Uh, Again, nothing was done. Uh, with that because of the complexity and the, and the available and the availability to, to make the, the rotor. It was, the technology wasn't in place to do that at the time, so it just kind of sat. And, of course, the step compressor was another U.S. patent by our, uh, Mr. Roger Wetherson out of uh, Buffalo, New York. Okay.
2: Okay, the screw compressor.
1: As I say, as I stay here, design was controlled by SRN. They had, uh, uh, they had established uh, license agreements with the cr- compressor manufacturers. Now, the initial design was a symmetrical uh, rotor profile. Here I spelled symmetrical wrong. It's two M's. Have a senior moment. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it worked. It worked well, but the efficiency ratings were relatively poor compared to piston machines. Uh, it had virtually no impact in the United States. The U.S. was the biggest market, but there were, there were no one was jumping <coughs> to to uh, get in into this, uh, this new arrangement. Atlas Copco was the first compressor manufacturer, Atlas Copco being a Swedish company. The, these guys were probably neighbors, and uh, they put the uh, uh, first uh, package compressor together in the I think it was the mid 50s. Uh, it was SRM uh, uh, soon found out that you know they had to do something to improve the the efficiency of the system, so they before a name, large Chevy was, uh, was working with SRM and they, they came up with the idea of, of uh, actually Tweaking the rotor, they they made it from, a, a from they went from a symmetrical to an asymmetrical profile and improved the, the uh, efficiency greatly. Now, what does that mean? When 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 these rotors mesh, air comes in, say at the top, and fills the flute that's empty. And as the as the rotors turn, the male rotor compresses the air that's in the open flute. It discharges out the end. And in the discharge process with the symmetrical design, there was a little hole that was, that was left. It didn't close. They called that the blow hole. And that was at high pressure. Now, that pressure would find its way back through an open loop to the, to the inlet of the machine that would then expand and restrict the amount of air that you could pull into the compressor for the next compression cycle. So consequently, the, the efficiency was not as good <coughs> as it could be. So by, by tweaking the design, going to the asymmetrical profile, they were able to cut that, the size of that blowhole down. And once the, the blowhole size was down, the efficiency ratings went up. Now the machines were somewhat the same as the, the piston machine from the efficiency standpoint. They were very, very close. Another thing happened at that time. This is a very difficult thing to machine because we start with a big rotor and it had to cut a lot of metal away to, to form that profile. Uh, there was a company in England, Holroyd, that developed a machine, a cutting machine, to do this more efficiently and quicker. I mean, I've seen that Holroyd machine work and it's scary to watch that thing go because it's a huge wheel with carbide cutters on it that spins at high speed while the cutting material is being turned. And chips are coming off that thing about that big and almost 3 16 of an inch in thickness. Cherry red, so you got this stuff flying off. (laughs) It looks like the 4th of July. But uh, it did help because now they could generate that profile effectively and, and fairly cost effective. Uh, now, once that happened, we had uh, all the people in the U.S. jumping on board. So there was a big increase in the, the number of people that, that built compressors to that license agreement for SRM. So we had all the major players in the U.S. on board as well as some of the Japanese uh, and uh, the Asian people. All these compressor manufacturers were paying us, us royalties to build their units. And this uh, went on for quite some time. They, they made a ton of money uh, just uh, selling the rights to build the, the compressor unit. Now, keep in mind, we got a lot of people out there building compressors. The heart of the compressor is the same in every machine, or was the same in every machine. Once the patent <laughs> limitations ran out, Other manufacturers jumped on and did their own thing, so there are a lot of differences now. But basically, they're still pretty much the same. It's been a huge success. Huge success. But The the screw compressor is still the workhorse of the industry. Every compressor manufacturer is in the screw compressor business. Big disinv- big advantage, uh big advantages over the, the piston designs. Uh, we have a, a machine that operates very smoothly. It's relatively quiet, low vibration. It, it produces and delivers a constant stream of air, whereas the piston machines were always pulsing, making a lot of noise. Uh, didn't re- uh, no no uh, foundation required. Low-cost maintenance, and could be in the oil-free configuration, but mostly in the oil-flooded configuration. Filled a good spot to take the place up to the uh, requirement for centrifugal machines these could deliver air up to maybe 1,500 to 2,000 cubic feet per minute whereas you go above that you're looking at a high, high cost centrifugal uh, uh, designer dynamic machine and maybe back up <laughs> just a bit on this uh, in late 60s the late 60s, um, the Atlas Copco was already in the business, and uh, there was the chief engineer of the Atlas Copco Compressor Division was located in Belgium uh, at the time. Uh, decided to make a, an oil-free version of the screw compressor. Um, the first, uh, the first machine was a portable affordable unit they had a specific application but from that they went into stationary machines and come the 70s there was a big demand for oil-free air to take care of some of the emerging uh, industries the electronics uh, the uh, synthetic fiber industry medical food so Atlas Copco had a real hold on the oil-free uh, compressor manufacturer so they really they really captured the market uh, were the only player and <coughs> consequently uh, made made a ton of money uh, on that one design that the oil-free version of the school compressor is the flat is right now the flagship even today the flagship product of the company if one looks at the annual report for Atlas copper you'll see that the compressor division is the most successful division. Within the company, and that one product is really responsible for it, and not by a little, by a lot. Uh, others are now cutting into into the uh, into Atlas Copco's hold on the on the oil free business with other models, but uh, they still are are still the, the market leader in that in that category. Okay, we we'll talked about the tooth compressor. This is a patent that was issued in the 40s to, to, uh, to call him Boyce Brown. Uh, nothing was done to develop that idea uh, for quite a while, and uh, <coughs> because of, principally because of the, uh, the, this was this was the, the initial design. I, I apologize. It, we, I went looking for, looking for some some real good. Pictures of the initial design, but uh, it, it, I couldn't come up with anything. And uh, uh, because it, the change was made in 2002, but but I lifted this from one of the brochures. That uh, this this arrangement was 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 uh, was okay, but it created unbelievable pulsation problems. We get uh, one pulse per revolution, and the machine was running probably would run in the you know 10 12000 rpm range. So we get this one pulse coming out every, every revolution uh, that was a problem that was very difficult to, to address and, and, uh, and uh, fix. Uh, balancing of the rotor was a problem. Uh, tooling wasn't really available at the time to come up with this complex arrangement. The other thing that happened too, because of the thin section, and that's the section that sees the most heat, there was tremendous uh, metal expansion and a lot of problems with interference with rotor to rotor and rotor to cylinder rotor to housing and uh, again difficult to, to overcome. It was a dry uh, oil free uh, compressor concept uh, and I said earlier in the 70s there was a real growth in the market for dry air, dry oil free air. Now. Uh, we could, get, we could get dry, oil-free air via the filtration process. You could take an oil injected uh, machine, send the compressed air through a filter process and clean it up, and almost to a point where it would be even better than air discharge from an oil-free machine. Mm-hmm. But a lot of manufacturers just wouldn't take the chance of uh, filter failure. I recall talking to a plant engineer at uh, uh, one of the electronics firms and where they had, actually had stainless steel piping for the air distribution system throughout that plant. And uh, he said that if I had an oil injected machine and had a filter failure, it would be catastrophic because now you've got, you've got massive amounts of contaminant going over into the pipe system and the product that would just devastate the product but he said it would be cheaper for them to take the whole pipe system down and repipe the plant and try to clean up the pipe uh, with the contaminant and this was a stainless steel system so you can see they're talking a lot of money so they want to take the chance, it, it's still done some people do that, some people still use uh, cleanup systems to get the uh, oil free air but, uh, but the purists still want to go the other group. Okay. Uh, in the '70s, the, the, the patent limitation on that uh, had expired. Uh, a lot of the—I'm hitting something here. A lot of the uh, so-called problems that were perceived earlier were now uh, uh, surmountable. They could get around it. Uh, so there were. There are a uh, couple couple of companies that started to to, to uh, manufacture. Worthington was one. Worthington started with a with a uh, a water cooled version of the tooth compressor, and here were here.
2: One, that there, you
1: there we go. There Thanks. Uh-huh. Yeah, one more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, Worthington and Atlas Copco attempted to develop that compressor package uh, back in the in the uh, in the in the seventies. Uh, now. Worthington was working on a 125-200 horsepower water cooled version. Atlas Escapa was working on a 30 to 50 horsepower air cooled version. They didn't even know they were working. Each one didn't know they, that the other one was working on on, the, on that uh, design. When Worthington got started, they did a, a patent search, and uh, they they. Uh, had a company check to see if anybody in the United States was even doing any work on that um, design and found out no one was doing anything, so they felt free and clear. However, uh, the search didn't include Europe because Atlas Copper was working on a small size at the same time. Neither one knew that they were working on it. Um, Then then here we go, 1980, Atlas Copper acquires Worthington (laughs) and is now that something is going screwy here. They, one guy is working on on uh, a larger size uh, of the uh, same design. <coughs> because this would overlap into the screw business, the uh, Atlas decided to drop the, the 125 to 200 horsepower uh, design. Uh, it didn't fit. Fit their, uh, fit their business model. Um, Worthington was probably only 40% home on the sign. They had a lot of work to do before they could even think of bringing it back to market. Abescoffco continued to work on the 30 to 50 horsepower size um, in the air-cooled version, uh, and That was, I think, introduced sometime in the early 1980s, and it had its problems. Uh, The U.S. was probably the largest uh, market size for a machine of this type. Um, Back in the late, in the 70s, there was a lot of uh, work going on the West Coast in the semiconductor business, and this size machine fit their business model well. There were a bunch of machines sold in the in the uh, Southern California region, in San Francisco, and up in, up in Oregon. The funny thing is that the first machine that came to the United States, of course, was an air-cooled uh, version. We had to convert that air-cooled machine into water-cooled because that's what the market really wanted. Somebody really screwed up when they did the market study. Uh, so the first thing we had to do was I had to convert that machine from an air-cooled to a water-cooled version uh, before we could even sell the very first one. Now this wasn't a true water-cooled machine because the only thing we made water-cooled was the heat exchangers. The compressor was still airfield design but it did satisfy the, the, uh, the customer requirement and uh, most of the machines that are, were sold on the west coast were of the cooled uh, version that we here in the United States had to modify after that machine was, was uh, brought in uh, we being we we are here in, in the US being a small company versus the large alescopal version in in, uh, in Belgium were able to turn things around much quicker and to make a, a big change like that and, uh, at, the, at the product company would take uh, a year, year and a half and eventually it did happen so a water cool machine does exist now and an air cool version also but that took some time. Um, there were a lot of operational problems with that first design. <coughs> pulsation was big (coughs) Uh, we had we had pipe systems and tanks uh, air tanks that would go into resonance That would be absolutely frightening when you go to the plant all this stuff is just vibrating violently and you think it's going to tear itself apart and if it didn't get attended to of course it eventually would Uh, so we had a a real hard job to to settle those machines out with pulsation dampeners and changing pipe lengths so that we didn't get into resonance in 2000, well, a number, well, Atlas, let me back up a bit. Atlas Copper then did spend a lot of money in trying to straighten that machine out. If, if it hadn't been for the fact that the company had deep pockets, I think that design probably would have died. But uh, they were committed, and they did spend a ton of money straightening it out, and got it, got it workable. But in 2002, they changed the design from, this, from the single-tooth arrangement to this dual-tooth Okay, that settled the machine out a lot. Now you didn't—you got rid of that wild pulse, and and from the stuff they had learned from the earlier design, incorporated in this design, this, com- this became a a uh, pretty reliable unit. Um, it's it's used uh, exclusively today. The single the single uh, step uh, single tooth uh, arrangement is still made. Uh, I think it's done only to to. Uh, Support the machines that are, that are in, the, in the field now. Huge investment of time was spent to correct that thing out, correct that machine. The design is offered globally now in the 20 to 50 horsepower range in both air and water cool versions. It fits. A spot in niche markets, but it doesn't come close to the sales volume compared to the screw machine. <coughs> the screw machine is still by far the, the leader. Where do these go? Uh, any place that really needs to in the small in the small shops. I know, and I I. I had the chance to get out to the West Coast to see some of these small semiconductor businesses that that utilized uh, and needed the, uh, the the tooth compressor, and uh, these uh, these uh, were in the fifty horsepower size that fit fit their fit their business model well. Anything larger than that would be overkill. They just didn't need that much. I think they do now because that business has grown tremendously from the time when that thing first started. Step compressor. Uh, I don't have any picture showing what that step compressor even looked like. When I say compressor, I'm talking about the compressor element and the rotors only not the rest of the unit. Uh, I have a model that I had tucked away in my desk downstairs uh, and I don't know why I am even saving it. But, but anyway, it's a, it's a complex rotor configuration. Uh, this doesn't show it, but there are cams that are bolted onto a rotor uh, and they're, these are intersecting cams. The position of these cams are very, very critical. Because this design ran at very high speed with very little clearances between the cam faces we're talking like a 1,000 to 1,000 and a half clearance uh, on something that rotates at 12 to 15,000 rpm, generating a lot of heat. So there was a, a lot of problems here. This was a very difficult thing to, to
2: configure. Did the metal wear out? Did it just well? That was one of the major
1: problems. We, no, you we, we didn't. If you had it right, the metal doesn't touch, it has clearance, but they run hot. you get expansion, and once they touch, it's gone. It locks up and the whole thing is destroyed. Now, this, this whole thing was, was put together by uh, uh, Dr. Rob, uh, Roger Weatherson in Buffalo. He, uh, Roger worked for Calspan uh, at the Cornell Research Labs in Buffalo. He had a blower experience, so this is what prompted him to even think this thing out. I mean, this is a pretty complex design. Hey Dad,
0: can you push,
1: maybe bring that around so people... Sure, it, you know, okay. yeah, just, you can pass that around, but, but wait, before you do that, let me just tell you how this thing, how this thing worked. A, uh, it, when you look at this, you see that opening, this is the top, this is a big opening, The here it comes in the top, it fills the first the first void and the first layer of the cam stack and then it goes down into a step into the second layer and then down to the third layer and discharges out the bottom
2: okay that the same volume that came in the top it comes out the bottom right same pressure yeah
1: well you're, you're building pressure as this is going down through it comes in at atmospheric you know, discharge at about 100 pounds, okay, about seven ratios. Now, you're not going to get everything out the bottom to come in the top because there's going to be losses. There's internal losses, there's leakages between the rotors, between the, between the, the cams, and over the top and over the ends. Okay, and so, so, you're not going to get as much out as went in. And what you're trying to do is get as much as you can so that you'd love to see. 90% efficiency rating if you could get that, but that's tough.
2: Does one doesn't one compression work against the other compression? No, when you're coming down
1: through right. because of the config when it passes around you'll see it's the configuration, the, the, the cam will inter, inter- with the other one and as it does, you'll there'll be avoiding it'll, it'll
2: Okay, will pass it'll through. push it through. It'll right. push it
1: through. Now, much like the uh, Atlas Copco arrangement for, for oil freeze, <coughs> the uh, cylinder and the end, end, end uh, housings were treated with a, a braidable uh, paint, a uh, so Teflon paint. The whole idea was to try to run this thing in so that you had as close to line to line fit between the rotor, the cylinder, and the end plates so the, the tighter you made that the tighter you made those leak paths the more efficient the rotor would be designed design would be as those abraded and got bigger and bigger you had more internal leakage which means that the discharge the high pressure air at discharge leaks back to the suction of the machine and reduces the amount of air free to come in so that you're losing, you're losing efficiency, and you've got a volume of air that's just going around in a circle. Okay, uh, we'll go back to the, the CalSpan's uh, the business business model. Th- they they were basically a test lab, uh, the Cornell Research Lab. Uh, They did a lot of wind tunnel work for the aeronautic uh, industry and for the automobile industry. Uh, They also did safety testing on cars. In fact, my first visit out there, I I went to the backyard and I saw, uh, I think there was a dozen brand new Lincoln Continentals sitting out there, and I'm saying, hey, what are you going to do with these? We're going to crash them. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah, what they do is they... They rig the cars up with mannequins that are all instrumented, and they'll take the car at the end of a track and accelerate it and run it right into a wall, and to, to see what was going to happen. They wanted to see what, what how the the car would respond in a head-on crash, and then what what happened to the occupants. I said, "Hey, that's pretty neat. How are we get a job here?" <laughs> said, "No, we can't. <laughs> that would have been a fun job." But uh, that was that was their main business, and. Uh, but Roger, because Weatherston had this, this side thing in his head, he convinced management that, geez, maybe we ought to do something with this thing that I've invented. Uh, at first, what, they, what the people at, at Labs did, they tried to sell the, the, the patent. And they went to all the compressor manufacturers and said, hey, th- we got this, this new mousetrap. Are you guys interested? And I, I know I was with Worthington at the time, <coughs> and we looked at it and he said, whoa. This is too complex. It will never be a uh, production machine. It's, it takes it would take too much. It's, it's a hobby type compressor. It would be great maybe in a lab setting, uh, but that's about as far as I think you could go with this thing. But uh, so there were no takers. So what they what they ended up doing, what Councilman ended up doing, is they they went out and they hired a bunch of compressor guys, mostly marketing guys, to see how they could build this thing and get it to market. So, uh, <coughs> they used their in-house uh, uh, technical help. They had some mechanics that could put this thing together. I mean, they had a bunch of uh, marketing guys. I think they came from Chicago Nomadic, I, I think. Yeah. <coughs> and, uh, they built a whole bunch of machines and they sold 80 of them. 80, 81, 82 machines. And, uh, there was a lot of interest because there was a need for a machine of this type of, and given to, to deliver the, the oil oil a year. But that was disaster, though, because every machine cracked out. I don't think it got a thousand hours on any machine <coughs> before it went down. And that full time, their full time was just trying to babysit and keep these things going. Uh, then luck, they had a lucky a lucky streak. Uh, Arvin came in and bought lab, CalSpan, uh, Cornell Labs. And of course once they looked at the sheets and they said, what is this compressive business that we're losing a ton of money on? Get rid of it. So there was a big concerted effort to get this thing off the off their books. And they went to all the manufacturers and said, and they're offering this thing at, at a you could buy the patent at a reasonable price and buy <coughs> the inventory that they had I know Ingersoll was involved, and, and uh, Worthington was involved. Worthington was the ended up with, a, with the product, even after the technical group that Worthington told them, "Don't touch it," because they think it's too difficult to handle on a, on a you know on a, on a, a production basis. It just, it just, it's just just a, a machine that is just going to be very difficult to to, re- to resolve uh, to the problems. Well, anyway, uh, we're was having their problems, and I think the management people thought that if they could get this project to work along with the tooth compressor project that we had running at the same time, that would be the salvation of the company. But in retrospect, as I look at now, that would have killed them for sure because both, both uh, designs have a peck of trouble. Oh, we, we brought that thing into Holyoke, and uh, that was tough. That was my baby. I, in fact, I had a full cool head of hair when that thing started. <laughs> and uh, it was very difficult. The other thing that made it difficult for me is that, uh, you know, we uh, because it was a new product and union guy, it was a union shop, and all the, I, the only people I could have working on this thing were the top union people, and that was not good. Uh, we put we put uh, about a dozen machines together uh, but most of our time was spent just babysitting the stuff that was already out there trying to keep it alive we did we did identify the problem areas and were planning on taking the steps to resolve and we, we know we had uh, serious seal problems we knew we had uh, problems with the bearings feel undersized and the rotor was had to be looked at because that was that was Very difficult to manufacture. And believe it or not, those two rotors that were the heart of the compressor were almost 50% of the total compressor package. So you see that each time we trashed a set of rotors, it was costing us a ton of money. Salvation. (laughs) Atlas Capital came along in 1980 and bought Worthington. And they took a look at this and said, whoa, what is this? Uh, and we tried to explain it, we're trying to keep them going, uh, we were committed. Uh, so with the help of some of the Atmoscopal uh, people, I was able to come up with a, a couple of fixes on, on the smaller, size, 30 horsepower sizes that we keep them running, but the bigger machines we just uh, we just couldn't resolve so, uh in due time, <coughs> in due time, Atlas Copco just dropped the whole thing and they replaced all the machines that were in the field with uh, another design.
2: So even though you had a, a great patent that, that you bought, uh, you still had manufacturing problems, even though you had a, a different market, you're saying, right? Yeah. But the patents were still very viable, but they were just... Uh, it was just a manufacturing nightmare. Oh, it was. It was. Right.
1: I mean, the thing was patent. Uh, there was a patent, but that does, because it's patent, doesn't mean it's any good. Well, <laughs> it just happens. <laughs> I mean, yeah, what would have been, I mean, it's not like, the, I guess they call it the advantage dilemma or whatever it is, that something's got to be four times as good or ten times as good or one-tenth the price. I mean, when this came in, was somebody saying, oh, this is going to be... One eighth the price? I mean, there had to be a reason other
0: than
2: just marketing to, to decide that well, there any resources Well, there, there, was, there
1: was, and, you know, as I said earlier, there was a market need for a small, dry rotary compressor because for these small shops, because they, they, they didn't want to go out and buy the big, big, high priced product when they didn't have to, you know, and so there was a need, and we tried to fill that need. But the thing is that when when Weatherston developed this compressor, he it really is a two stage it really is a two stage machine. What he did is he developed the first stage, he got the first stage to work, and they <laughs> ran with that instead of taking it all the way. Let's build a model, a working model that we are comfortable with, and we know we can build. So <laughs> they just it was just. You call it greed, maybe I don't know. They wanted to get into this thing we so bad. just uh, dollar signs. That's oh, all yeah. that's absolutely right. right. That's absolutely right without and that, thinking. And that really killed it. I mean, that was a well.
2: Don't they listen to the engineers at all? Hmm. Don't they listen to the engineers? I find that's most of the problem in most upper management. Is you read? Uh, uh, what, what is that? Uh,
1: what is that? Uh, that, uh, that comic strip goes, right? that Dilbert? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Engineers are stupid. It's the marketing guys. Eh? They're running the business. <laughs> no, it was, it was bad. It yeah. was really bad. bad.
2: Did they end up breaking up the patents into selling various parts of the patents? I think everything is destroyed. Overall. Yeah,
1: there was, a, there was a very complicated timing fixture that, that went with this package. Uh, it was very difficult to, to time these rotors so that they didn't mash uh, you know, when they spun at these high speeds, uh, I know that got trashed. Uh, everything was destroyed. And uh, Rod, Rod, uh, Weatherston just died a couple of years ago. I know he died a bitter man because he really thought that he really could shaft it in this whole deal. He didn't get anything, really. Uh, he was supposed to have been paid royalties on stuff that we sold, but we didn't sell anything. And uh, it was very difficult. Well,
2: well that's not the same today the <laughs> usually gets the short end of the yeah. sticks uh, it was bad, it was, really
1: bad. <coughs> yeah. Design. it was not ready for market it had a lot of problems I know the bearings were undersized the, uh, the sealing arrangement was, was not good uh, they used a uh, he had a, uh, a carbon face seal uh, to seal off the two ends Incredibly brittle. In fact, I tell you the truth, we were assembling the bearings. That the the seal fit behind the bearing. pushed the bearing on. We were putting a stethoscope on the casing to listen for the crack when we pushed the bearing home. I mean, that's how delicate the design was. And that, you know, that's not a production machine. You can't go to the market with something like that. It, uh, what should have been done is that we. we Actually, we changed it. We took the, that out, and I put a lab seal, seal in there. Yeah, we're losing some air, but it, it worked. It was a windback arrangement, so we made sure that no oil got, in, got into the compressor <coughs> chamber, and we had a dry rotary machine, but <coughs> we're dumping air. Okay. The bearing was way undersized. the size. It should have been a bigger size. Uh, it should have been... Uh, a close close clearance is probably class three bearing so he didn't have this much slot. And, uh, and of course the cost of rotor was uh, that I don't know how we're going to address that that was uh, very very difficult um <coughs> yeah okay I'm about done anyway but uh, what uh, what I want to say? very poor decision-making too too much too complex for for uh, for the market. Uh, inadequate test. So that thing uh, that thing just died. Okay, I, I, I had some other stuff, but I think uh, you know I've been I've been going. Uh, I hope I didn't bore you too much. <laughs>
0: Dan, what do you see for the future? Are there any new things coming on the market that uh, that will improve the, the compressor?
1: I'm sorry? I'm
0: what do you see for the future? Do you see anything new, new things
1: coming on? Uh, I don't think I see anything new coming on as far as the rotor design is concerned, but I think there's a lot of innovative stuff that can be implemented on the controls, uh, especially now that we have Every compressor out there now is written with a microprocessor. Uh, we're able to run into uh, very tight, uh, very tight uh, operating controls. Uh, most of the most of the work being done now is is directed in that in that area. We, uh <coughs> I don't see anything. To tell you the truth, I don't see anything coming down to replace the screw and, and um, uh, the screw compressor. That. Uh, uh They've made great strides on uh, efficiency. I mean, we first were machining with the Holeroid. They went to a hobbing process. They're grinding rotor profiles now, so they're getting virtually no backlash. The clearances between the uh, rotor and the cylinder and, and the and the housing is, is controlled very tightly. So, and, uh, so the leakage, uh, the, the internal leakage is, is minimal, and uh, we're getting very respectable uh, efficiency ratings on uh, compressors, uh, the screw compressors, uh, approaching and almost as good as the old piston machines, where uh, you know we could we could control the clearance between the top of the piston and the uh, the plate to within a few thousand, so that we had real good operating efficiencies with, with the piston units, but they had their level problems that the rotary design is addressed and, and resolved. Um, we, can, we, can run, we can run a compressor. This has been done. We have a compressor, say, in Chicago, and we can operate it from a desk in Belgium and tell them exactly how it's running. In fact, when they were developing this whole thing, they called a, 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 a customer in the US he said uh, well we're monitoring your compressor this is guys in Antwerp we're monitoring your compressor I think it's going to shut down in a few minutes and the guy went out and boom down it went they had, they had uh, all the parameters uh, all, uh, all, all uh, being monitored who's
0: the leader now in this area
1: who's the leader um, in the compressor business in the world these days and uh, well Burlington no longer exists uh, Atlas Copco is is uh, probably the prime global player. Right? It's a global company uh, with uh, representation <laughs> everywhere. In fact, right now we have a large uh, manufacturing. We aren't there anymore, but uh, they have a large manufacturing facility in China. In fact, most of the major manufacturers uh, are in China now. And uh, Oemisol is still there, Garmin Denver. Uh, <coughs> In the United States, probably the biggest biggest uh, player is Inosal Ranch. Uh, Atlas Copco bought, actually, as I mentioned to you earlier, Atlas Copco uh, bought Worthington in 1980, not because of the product, because the product lines are pretty much the same. What we did at, the, at Worthington, Atlas Copco pretty <coughs> much did the same thing. but. Atlas Copco was a a global player with virtually no representation in the United States in in 1980. But Worthington had a huge distributor network and they bought the company for that. This allowed them to get their product out and (coughs) penetrate the the U.S. market. They've done a good job. It was a tough job because people used to say, Atlas who? And we just weren't known. Yet they're, they're known globally because they were everywhere. But big player now. Good product. Product, they're, they're, they're oil free, is, is by far a, a leader. Uh, I don't think anybody comes close to selling the number of oil free machines that Alice Compton does, and uh, premium. I understand, I, I, understand
2: I understand it's about 50,000 employees work for a company
1: in Belgium? Well, all together. Oh, no, that's over 100. Is shopping. it? Uh, I it know big. somebody is a city. Belgium. Belgium is big.
2: For your company, and it, just, it oh. just goes to South America. Just for your company. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: This business is booming mm-hmm. up there.
1: Yeah. Atlas Krapo, is, as I said, is a Swedish based company in, in um, early, early 1950s. They bought this this small compressor company uh, in in just outside of Antwerp in Belgium called the ARPIC, ARPIC Compressor Works. And uh (coughs) they built that thing into a world-class manufacturing facility. I mean, they've got flex manufacturing. I mean, the plant is, is, it blows your mind when you go go there and just see how they're handling the manufacturing process. And yet, the only thing they manufacture and work on are the rotors, and a couple of casing. Everything else is outsourced. Everything. They have people making sheet metal for them, frames, vessels, piping. It's all outsourced, it comes in, and they, they just get assemble.
2: Yeah. As long as they put their name on it, that's what counts.
1: Yeah. And like every other manu- manufacturer, all they're interested in is, how much money are you making? And they're making. They're doing well. They're doing well. Oh,
2: well, we've got a to, to the science. Every part, every cost. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, and you know when you get a captive part, <coughs> product, and any any replacement part becomes hellishly expensive because <laughs> you can't go anyplace else to get it. So you know you have a unique mouse trap, and you control the design, and. You want it? Okay.
2: <laughs> Are they in a stock sorry, market? It must be. Sweden. No. Sweden?
1: they not in no. the no. U.S. No. stock no. market. No. No. What a great opportunity. Yeah, you know they've done well. <laughs> the company I know is right now is in an acquisition mode, but they're, they're they're playing it cool. I mean, I know they're cash rich and they want to they they buy up buy up companies and. Uh, Quincy Compressor is now owned by Atlas
2: Compressor. There's really no U.S. (laughs) compressor companies really to speak of up here, is there? Not very many big ones.
1: No. Ingersoll, probably the biggest. biggest, uh, Gardner Denver is small. uh, Quincy is small. uh, uh, That part of Atlas Compressor and all, but Joy is almost defunct. And you know, at one time, at one time there were uh, probably fifteen to twenty compressor companies in the U.S. Davy is gone, Smith is gone, and uh, it's, it's funny because the compressor business is not a a growth type business. I mean, it's it's a very mature market. I mean, there's a big business out there, and the players right now, all they're trying to do is jockey for positions, see who can take the most. And, uh, you know, uh, try to come in with something that.
2: To me, because it doesn't seem like a product that has a short lifespan a compressor. Oh no. There's compressors out there that are oh no. running since the 30s. Yeah.
1: The 200 horsepower Worthington screw compressor that was built in the 70s? Those machines are still running. I think some of them. We're talking approaching forty years.
2: You think you'd run out of customers by then? right now?
1: No, there's a lot of application for air. Yeah. A lot of air application. It's a lot.
2: Yeah. Okay,
1: I just touched on the uh, the industrial side. We got the portable side. You know, that again is 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 huge, a huge market. I mean, you see, you see these little things being pulled around by a truck, you know, just operating a couple of pneumatic hammers, but they go into huge sizes, you know, to, uh, to handle emergency <coughs> here. One, uh, they, they have a very large uh, oil-free uh, portable compressor that Atlas uh, Copco doesn't sell. You can't buy this machine. You have to rent it. And every time there's a there's a nuclear plant, plant that goes down for outage, they'll hire they'll hire probably 30 or 35 or 36 of these things just to maintain pressure air pressure in the in containment of the of the of the uh, reactor so that and it has to be dry air it has to be clean air It can't contaminate and I know they sell those things by the cubic foot so you know we're talking huge money. Snowmaking, big business. At one time, it was oil injected machines. Now it's almost the oil free because because uh, you get a large oil injected machine and you could be dumping as much as 100, 200 gallons of oil on the hill over the course of the of the winter. All that oil ends up in the river, possibly, or contaminated. So you know the green green uh, peace guys go all over these all these snowmakers and said it's got to be oil free air. So
2: there's so no more hammers, hammers uh, the construct- uh, carpenters All um, nails, automatic
1: nails pressure nails yeah, yeah. I don't even see the hammers anymore I don't oh. nails. Oh. they took the hammer to this way out right? yeah. 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 <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <coughs> yeah in fact everybody in fact the roofer and you yep. the guy came to re-roof my house he had a little compressor yeah. that's, that's, that's how he's it. nailing and the guy said but to saved my hands, the I used to pound this thing all the time and now it should go boom 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 Great.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, any other questions for Dad? Well, thank you very much for coming. Appreciate. It. <laughs> I'm sure, Dad will stick around for a little bit and answer any people of the other okay. personal
1: right. questions for him. Hey, you know, if is interested in, uh, you know, just get on, uh, get on the uh, internet. You 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 punch in "Lisom Compresses," L I S H. Olm, and uh, I'm telling you, there's a whole bunch of stuff. They tell you all the all the applications that that uh, that, that have been uh, have been used, and uh, quite a bit on the background on, on how this whole thing evolved, and uh, it's pretty interesting. Great, thank you, Dan. Okay.
0: Um,
2: Craig, uh, everybody, does everybody have a number? Okay, everybody got a number. All right, Craig. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna.